On that note, if you have a Bible and you are not going to the nursery and you're staying here with us, you can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 4, and we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. And the title of this sermon today is The Way of Power. We've been examining this gospel way that Christ puts before us in the Gospel of Mark, and today we're going to look at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through chapter 5, verse 20. And Typically, these are two fairly well-known stories, the this calming of the storm and the healing of the demoniac. And from almost all of my life in ministry, these two things, these two stories have been taught separately. Uh, if you're a young life person, these are two pretty normal stories that you go through in, in young life. But as I was reading and studying, I thought, boy, we should smash these two things together. Because what we see in these two accounts is we see our Lord Jesus do something powerful. And miraculous. And the end result then is fear. In the first instance, we see Jesus showing this wonderful power over the natural world, and the disciples then fear, a great fear. And then we see Jesus move on into ministry, and he shows his wonderful, powerful lordship over the supernatural world by healing the demoniac, and the people fear. And so, what we're going to look at in these two accounts is the way of power that Jesus not only displays, but then invites us into by the power of His Spirit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and, and life-giving Word from Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took with him they, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and change, chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by, your, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out for the, of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. 
the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim him in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, teach us what it means that you are Lord over all creation, the natural and supernatural world. Help us to know that you are not a mere teacher, ethical instructor, religious guru, but you are the Lord of all things, and you are due the worship and praise. Father, help us to know that it's not just a power to command, but a power to redeem, a power to forgive, a power to lay down your life that you might redeem your people and then empower them by your spirit. Father, we ask that your spirit would empower us to hear your word read and preached today that it might accomplish what you purposed. Lord, that your word would not return void, but that you would dig it into our hearts and our minds, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, Jesus. We love you, and we pray all this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. In the early 11th century, there was a king named King Canute, and he was the king of the North Sea Empire. And this is one of the lesser-known empires in the history of humanity, but it was a time when um, Denmark, what is now Denmark, England, and Norway were all united under King Canute, and it's that little kind of ring around the North Sea and they had this, this wonderful um, peace and stability for 30 years. Now, and 30 years does not sound like a long time, especially in kind of the scale of history, but 30 years was not insignificant for this particular reign because if you know anything about the history of the Vikings and Viking raids, it was not a time full of peace and security. There was lots of turmoil. And so King Canute was this powerful king of the North Sea Empire. And the legend goes that he was so great... And he had a court of nobles that were so intent on flattering him that one day they were walking by the sea and they said, King Canute, you are so great. You are so powerful that even the sea and the waves will obey you. And King Canute goes, all right, bring me a chair. And he sets the chair down in the surf and he sits down in the chair and he says to the waves, be still, come no further. Sure enough, as the tide rises, as it always does, King Canute's feet got wet. His robes were wet. And he stood up and he said to his nobles, There is no man that has the power of the creator of all things. King Canute shows us what we hear in this text, what we read in this text, that as great and as mighty and as powerful as mankind could possibly be, and it's, we, we have a great capacity for greatness There is nothing in this world, nothing we can do as created beings to still the rising of the tide, to calm the seas. There is none like that that has that power but the Lord Jesus, who is the creator of everything. And we see Jesus display this power not for 
just to show off his, his power, but to display his lordship and his messianic nature. And so we see here in verse 35, Mark is picking up the narrative that we stopped last week. Jesus was done teaching. He had been teaching in parables. He had been sitting in this boat. And when evening came, he said, let's go across to the other side. And so they began going across the other side, Jesus, his disciples in the boat, and there were other boats with them. And as they were traveling, nature happened. This great windstorm arose. This was not uncommon for the Sea of Galilee. There were mountains all around. And if you know anything about weather, and I only know this because I Googled it, but there's, you know, there's changing weather patterns and pressure that has to do with air coming up over the mountains. And so because of the mountains in the region, Galilee was prone to severe windstorms. And so this great storm had whipped up and was raging around the boat. And the disciples began to panic. But there's Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat. While the storm raged on all around them, Jesus was there fast asleep. He's like the farmer that we, we read about last week who throws his seed and then goes to bed and it doesn't know how it, how it grows. Jesus is showing us two things as he's asleep here. He's showing a really normal, natural human need for rest. But he's also showing us the possibility of being so secure and so trusting in the goodness and greatness of God that even when life is swirling all around him, he's able to be calm and to rest. It's like an illustration of what the Gospel of Matthew records as Jesus uh, is being tempted by Satan. Jesus knows that God will command his angels concerning him, that God, because he's the Lord of all things, will keep him, will protect him. And so Jesus is displaying that faith and conviction He is displaying this faith and conviction as true power, as true power in the midst of chaos. The disciples are not so. They're not ready to take a nap. They freak out. They are upset, and they go to Jesus and wake him up. And the Greek here, where they say, where they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's not, that's a, that's a pretty smoothed out way of reading it in English. And then uh, the gospel of Matthew and Luke, they also kind of smooth it out. But the, the original reading here in this Greek is pretty rough. It's pretty disrespectful. It's pretty, um, in the one sense, normal for experiencing chaos. You don't respond uh, with the nicest, most controlled, most even-keeled speech when you're afflicted and you're afraid and you're worried. And so the disciples go to wake Jesus up. And one of the things that I love about God's word is that the gospel writer, Mark, is so honest. He paints the disciples not with this rosy picture of kind of faith that kind of lets them glide through life on a cloud, but this is, this is faith. This is the disciples working out real life in real time. And they were scared. They were terrified. And it shows us that that's not an abnormal response when there's chaos where there's destruction, where there's uncertainty. Sometimes fear is a reasonable response. Now, a quick point of detail that I think I have often glossed over. They're in a boat. And that we take that detail as being axiomatic as part of the story. But a boat is an expression of human technological advancement and ingenuity. Without boats, there would have been a whole vast swath of the earth that we would not have been able to explore, that we would not have been able to take advantage of economically. And so the disciples right now are in the middle of, I wouldn't say the peak of human ingenuity, but they were in what is an example of human mastery and dominion. 
And not only that, but several of the disciples were fishermen. So not only did they have a boat, this was their livelihood. And it was on this very body of water that they would have been economically engaged. This was their domain. This was their sphere. This was their place of work. And it got them shook. The wind was raging so hard. They knew that they should be afraid. And they knew they had no mastery over the situation. Whatever amount of expertise and experience and technological advancement they had had, they were afraid and said, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? So Jesus wakes up. And an un, uh, I, I think a, a, an unthought of small miracle, maybe, Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for their rudeness. Doesn't immediately rebuke them for their unbelief. Rather, he rebukes the wind and says, Peace, be still, and everything is calm. Kids, I have a quick question for you. It's about time to ask one. What's the biggest thing you've ever seen in nature? What's the biggest nature thing? Yes, Anna. Really, really, really big tree in your backyard. All right, that's a good example. Yeah, Bela, what is the biggest thing you've ever seen in nature? A redwood tree? Those are like the biggest trees. Man, Caleb, what about you? Like the Himalayas? You've been to the Himalayas? No, that's, that makes sense. Mount Rainier? That's a very big, yes, Simone. The Grand Tetons. So kids, when, oh, yes, one more. Oh, Niagara Falls. All right, so when you see these massive things in nature, Niagara Falls, the ocean, mountains, big trees, normally it is a normal human response to feel small, to feel like, wow, there is something so much bigger than me out there. There's actually something we call that general revelation where the mountains declare the glory of God. And so there's a sense in which when you look at these big, powerful, mighty things in nature, that should make us think of how big God is. And so Jesus, what he's doing is that he is showing that as big as the Sea of Galilee is, as powerful as the storm is, he is the one who is Lord over that massive and powerful creation. He is the one that is in charge of it. And so we should feel small. But we have a really, really big Savior. And so what he does here, what he does in response is he asks this question. Disciples, do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? Now, that's not a nice word. And it's, if we have a, you know, the word afraid. It's not quite like that in the Greek. If you look at the Greek and you go to other places where it's used, you go back to the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. This is the word, this word afraid was the, the ones that were, were cowardly when Gideon was forming his army. They were the ones that got sent home because they weren't ready to fight. Or if you look in, the, in, in Revelation 21, this is the same word that the, the cowardly are outside the kingdom of God with the dogs and the evildoers. This is not a nice word that Jesus uses to ask his disciples. Are you, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And there's almost a sense in which he's, he's asking them, don't you know who I am? Right after I called you by the seaside, you were mending your nets. Right after I called you, you watched me silence a demon and cast the demon out saying, peace, be still to that demon. Right after I called you, you saw me 
teaching in the synagogues. And they were amazed at my teaching because I taught as one that had authority, unlike the scribes. Do you not know who I am? You've seen me time and time again heal people, cast out demons. The crowds have come to me and I have delivered them. Do you not know who I am? Jesus seems to be asking, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And the disciples, as they, they respond, they, they, don't, they don't laugh it off. They don't, they don't chuckle and go, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus, sorry, we forgot. No. They were filled with a great fear. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Filled with a great fear. Filled with the awe of knowing this is the one who commands the winds and the waves. So what we see from this is that although Jesus did these things, he was a great teacher, he was a great healer, he he was a great religious innovator, he was a great ethical instructor, we cannot approach Jesus in that way. He is one that has too much power, too much authority, too much lordship over all of creation. We have got to consider that when we think about Jesus, even as those who have been walking with him for years and years and years. Jesus is not just a nice bit of religious accoutrement that we have in our lives. He's actually the Lord of all creation. He's the one that when there was nothing, he was there and he spoke everything into existence. When there was darkness, he spoke light and life and order into the chaos. And so that is the one who calls us to follow him. And so there are two, I think, very clear application questions that we have to ask as we come to this text as God's people. As God's people. And the first one is this. It's the same as the disciples. Where is your faith? Brothers and sisters, I, Morgantown is um, a unique town in the state of West Virginia. You know, the, the hospitals are here, the, the college is here. And if we're being honest, many of us, our faith is at the one time, yes, in Jesus, but there's also a very functional faith in the letters that come before and after our names, right? There's a D, there's an R, there's a P, there's an H, there's another D. Because those letters, they don't represent just jobs, they represent training and experience and expertise and time and money. And man, when you go through that much schooling and that much um, training, you have a right to have a, a level of confidence and assurance in what you do. Or not even the letters in your name, but the numbers and the commas in your bank account, right? Like there's a functional trust. And if I just invest the right amount of money in the right places, I will be secure. I will be taken care of. I will be ready for whatever life has to throw at me. And look, here's the thing. Like school is great. Money is great. You need both of those two things. I'm not disparaging getting your PhD. I'm not disparaging investing wisely. What I am saying is that functionally speaking, we are apex predators. We are the ones, people have figured it out. We know how to to accomplish things. We know how to build things. We know how to create things. And so it is not abnormal in our lives to functionally trust in our own expertise, our own education, our own Abilities and not functionally trust in Jesus. So whatever control we try to exert over the world, whatever order we try to create, 
we have to understand that the one who is controlling all things is not actually us. And Christ, as our powerful Lord over all things, calls us to come and trust him because he is sufficient to bring order amidst the chaos and life amongst the death and healing amongst the brokenness. That's not to say don't strive for excellence in your education, your job, or your your investments, but do not trust in those things because Jesus alone is the one that is Lord over all things. And the second kind of application point that we need to wrestle with is just that, is that Jesus truly is Lord of all creation. Brothers and sisters, we are not deists. We do not believe that God created the world and then just let it go, and it is now being spun about by impersonal scientific forces. We believe that Jesus is actively upholding all things by the word of his power. This God who stills the storm, who commands the wind and the sea, he is actively, intimately, and personally upholding all of creation. And so you and I can rest and believe that he actually is Lord, and we don't have to be. Because when you don't functionally believe that Jesus is Lord, something's got to be Lord. Something's got to be in charge. Something's got to be in control. And I will tell you what, I know from personal experience, and I bet you would agree with me, we make terrible lords. We make terrible masters. Because then we get mean to our kids when they don't obey. We get wildly upset with our friends when they disagree with us. We get wildly freaked out when when things don't go our way. And so we have to have the humility and the grace to understand that God in heaven is upholding all things by the word of his power because Jesus has ascended and is sitting on the throne. All things hold together for his power and purpose. And so there is a sense in which we can sleep in the stern amidst the storm because Jesus is in control. But you see, it's not just that natural world that Jesus is controlling. It's not just the nature and the creation that you can see. Because when Jesus spoke everything into existence, it wasn't just the rocks and the trees. It was the angels. Right? There's a whole spiritual element to our world that, that we don't really see with our eyes. In fact, I actually wrestled with, should I label this point supernatural? Because I didn't want it to be you know, about like ghosts or whatever. But there is a real, clear, spiritual element that in our modern, scientific, materialistic minds, we don't consider. So we have to come to the text and look at what Jesus does with this demoniac and understand that he is also Lord over and has power over the supernatural world. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Following their little jaunt across the sea in the boats, they finally arrive at land. And it says there in the country of the Gerasenes. And there's some kind of textual debate over where exactly this was. There's different words. Your Bible might have some footnotes with some different names. That's fine. We can talk about that offline if you want. But the important thing to point out here is that they're not in Israel anymore. They're not in Jewish country anymore. They are now in Gentile country. They've gone across the sea, and they are now in a Gentile region. And immediately... Immediately, they get out the boat, and there is somebody that is walking out of the tombs, and he's coming to Jesus. Now, what we see here at the beginning of chapter 5 is a vivid and powerful picture of somebody that has been wholly and completely wrecked with evil. I'm just going to reread it. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. 
not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with chains, shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That is a graphic and powerful depiction of someone whose heart, whose mind, whose body, whose spirit is wrecked with suffering who has been so deeply, profoundly impacted by the evil in this world. He is living among the tombs. He is like a dead man walking. He is not fit for polite and civilized society. He has been cast out. He's ripping the chains, ripping the shackles, destroying his body because his spirit is in so much turmoil. Kids, I'm going to pause here and I'm going to ask you another question. And it's time that we got to be honest. It's going to be real honest, kids. I'm assuming we all get upset maybe throw a temper tantrum. Let's be honest. What do you do when you get upset, kids? What's something that you do? Yeah, Anna. Blame it on other people. What about you, Aaron? Sometimes you hit Graham. Ah, oh, I bet, buddy. What? A, yeah, Graham. Ooh, slam the door. Yeah, um, Caleb, I saw your hand first. Go, yeah, go into your room. Sometimes, oh, okay, Bela, one more. You peace space. That's that's mature. That's very mature. Um, kids, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. Adults don't behave the way they're supposed to, and they get upset all the time either. So when you are profoundly and deeply upset, sometimes we, we hit people. Sometimes we slam the door. Sometimes we stomp our three feet and throw things. When you get so viscerally and deeply afflicted in your spirit, in, in your body, in your mind, you just can't help but act crazy like this guy is acting crazy, all right? This is something that is deeply troubling him, and we learn as he's uh, approaching Jesus that he is filled with many, many demons. When he sees Jesus, when he sees Jesus, he runs to Jesus and says, what have you to do with me, son of the most high? Isn't it interesting how the demon-afflicted people are always the ones that so rightly and quickly understand Jesus when the disciples who watched him calm the storm were so dense and dull and unlearned. So this man, deeply spiritually affected, has a legion of demons, has many demons. And so what we see in this is this is a man that has been spiritually afflicted, but he bears all the marks of being dealt with in a very naturalistic way. They put shackles on him in chains. They wanted to physically subdue him because he was acting in such a way. But he wrenched those things apart because there wasn't just a physical ailment in his body. It was something deeply spiritual, and it wasn't just going to be fixed in a naturalistic way. So they sent him away, and he was living among the dead. But when he saw Jesus, it changed everything. A spiritual problem has to have a spiritual solution. A spiritual affliction has to have a spiritual solution. And so this demon cries out, not in physical pain, but in the spiritual anguish of, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Because Jesus, in this interaction, he asks the man his name. And and, and the demon knows something's up because Jesus is Lord over all of creation. So he asks the name of the demon The answer is legion, for we are many. So there's clearly some kind of levels of demonic affliction that we see in the scriptures. And when the demon asks 
or when Jesus asks the demon's name, he asks this, this odd question, don't torment me, don't destroy me, let us go into the pigs. And if you look in the text, this is such a key passage. If you look in the text in chapter 5, verse 13, so he gave them permission. Jesus is at war with, the, with Satan, with the enemies of darkness, but he is still Lord over them. So Jesus gave the demons permission and they ran away out of the man and they entered the pigs where they promptly rushed down the hillside and were destroyed anyway uh, in the sea. And so what I want to put before you really quick is one thing. This is not necessarily a, a prescriptive uh, event. Sometimes the Bible um, describes things and at the same time that it describes them, it also prescribes them. For example, Jesus says, Go therefore... Um, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a prescriptive event. When we baptize people, they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are called as God's people to go make disciples of all nations. This is not a prescription for how you deal with demons. This is not a prescription for go ask the demon its name, make sure you have at least 2,000 pigs, and then allow the demons to go into the pigs. This is simply uh, the record of what Mark is, is witnessing here. All right, this, this passage, these passages have all the, the marks of eyewitness accounts. And so what Mark is doing is he's not giving us a prescription to how to deal with the demonic forces. He's telling us that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is Lord of the demonic forces, even giving them permission to go into the pigs. And so when that happened, when that happened, uh, the men who were watching that potentially the pig farmers, um, they ran away into the city. They just saw something insane. I mean, just for a second, try to imagine 2,000 pigs that are alive probably don't smell very good, but then you have 2,000 pigs that rush down into the sea and they die. That is quite the scene that is going to have quite an effect on people. And so what happened is these people run away into the city and they tell everybody what they've seen. And when they come back, when the herdsmen fled and they told it in the city, and the people came back to see, they didn't marvel at all the dead pigs. They didn't marvel at the loss of their economic livelihood. They marveled at the fact that this man, who had been living among the tombs, naked, cutting himself with stones, was fully clothed in his right mind, and was sitting there at the feet of Jesus. And it didn't inspire them to be better. It terrified them. They saw the result of Jesus, the Messiah, being Lord over the spiritual world, Lord over the supernatural, and it terrified them. They begged him, leave. We don't know who you are. We don't know what you're about. But if you can do that to that guy, you have no business being here. They wanted him to leave. And so Jesus actually acquiesces their request But at the same time, the man who had been redeemed and restored, he begged to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 you actually have to stay. You have to stay because you need to go tell everybody how much grace and mercy you have experienced and what the Lord of all things over the natural and supernatural world has done for you. And so Jesus repurposes the life of this man who has been healed and says, go now, you are on a mission to tell everybody what has happened. And for those of you keeping score at home, you might wonder, 
well, how come this guy gets to go talk about it and everybody else that's been healed up to this point doesn't get to go say? Jesus has told everybody else, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody what, what, I, what I've done. Um, be quiet about it. But this man, he says, go ahead and go. Tell everybody. And the answer to that is, on the one hand, Jesus is Lord, so he can do things what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Uh, but the second is that, remember, this is Gentile country. This isn't Jewish uh, country. So in the Gentile country, they would have had not as much baggage in history when it comes to the Messiah. Remember, there's a real fear that Jesus had of people trying to appropriate his messianic nature to force him to be king over Israel right then at that time. And so when he was working and laboring and ministering amongst the Jewish people, he was very clear that he wanted to conceal his messianic nature and reveal it in time. But here, with this guy that he just healed from the tombs, this, is Jewish, this isn't Jewish country, so he's saying, go, tell everybody what the Lord did for you. Go and share the good news. And so, what we see here in this, uh, in this section, a couple application points that I think we can extrapolate. And one we've already touched on a little bit, and that is all to say, Mercy Church, brothers and sisters, we are not naturalistic materialists. We do not believe that nature is all that we can see and touch and feel and experience. We don't believe that the material world is all that there is. In fact, part of the hope of the Christian life is actually in not just having Jesus forgive you of your sins, but that you would be resurrected from the dead. And so there is a supernatural element to our faith and our worldview that we have to own and we have to lean into. It is so easy to look at Jesus amongst the pantheon of world religions and say, man, he is a really, really good moral, ethical, religious teacher. But if we stay there, we might as well be Muslim. Because we have to understand that Jesus is God incarnate and that he has created all things and that this world is not just physically all that there is. There is a spiritual, supernatural element that we would do well to acknowledge. I don't want to lean too much into C.S. Lewis here, but I think he does it right when he says that there are two great errors that we make in the church when considering things like demonic activity. And the first error is that we make too much of it. But the second error is that we make too little of it. And so there's kind of a sweet spot right there in the middle that as we understand the the lordship of Jesus over the supernatural world, we have to acknowledge that the supernatural world is there so he can be lord over it. But at the same time, we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be paralyzed with the notion that there's a demon around every corner. Because as Jesus came into the world, as Jesus came into the world, we see here he is a lord over that demonic activity. Jesus, in his crucifixion and death and resurrection, disarmed the powers and the principalities and the spiritual forces in the world. And because he came into the world, was died, was resurrected and ascended in power, Satan has been bound. So you, as God's people, can rest assured that your Messiah, Lord Jesus, is Lord over that supernatural world and he is in fully control. The second kind of application point that I think we can extrapolate is that Jesus, as our Messiah, as our Redeemer, as our Healer, brings a depth of healing and a depth of wholeness to our, our, our minds, our bodies, and our spirits that natural, physical remedies fall short. 
This man was bound with chains and shackles and sent out amongst the death works, and it did not work. And so there's a good amount of healing and personal growth that you can have by learning stuff, um, by changing your morning routine, um, by taking medicine that, that helps your body. But there is a level of spiritual regeneration that is only possible. You will only find in Christ. And so don't disparage all of the other remedies, but understand that sometimes there are afflictions so deep that things of this natural world cannot touch. There's no amount of vitamins or workout routine or online gurus that can teach your way out of it. All right? You will find it in Christ. Sin affects every part of your body, soul, mind, spirit, and you can be redeemed fully and completely by Christ. But, you might say, but what if it's not? What if it's taking a long time? What if I feel weak? And what if I feel powerless? And what if you're saying all these great things, and sure, they might be true, but what if I don't feel it? What if I don't experience it? What if I don't know it? What if I'm wrestling with something right now? And I would say to you, while we were weak, while we were weak, Christ came to die for the ungodly. In our weakness, in our frailty, in our fallen nature, in our rebellion against God, He came at that time to die for you. To not just get you out of hell, to not just make sure that you were going to spend eternity with Him so that all part of your body, all part of your soul might be redeemed, might be restored, that you might be forgiven of our sins, but also given a righteousness that you could never earn. There's no amount of religious effort that you can do to kind of cover up or balance the scales for the sins that you've committed against God. And so Jesus, in his lordship, in his messianic nature, he comes and says, I will redeem all of you, and not only will I redeem all of you, I will give to you the riches and the glory of my own right standing before the Father. I will give that to you so that by faith you might be redeemed and reconciled to your God who made you and who calls you by his name. You see, the legend goes that after Canute left the seaside, with his feet wet and his robes red, wet, he took his golden crown off his head and went into the church there, and he hung his crown on the crucifix, knowing that there is no authority that one can have on this earth that is not subservient to or underneath the authority of God the Father. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Christian life is an exercise of day after day, moment after moment, taking off your crown where you would say, I would be king, Jesus. I would rule my own kingdom. I would do what I want when I want. The Christian life is a, is a, is a process and a pattern of taking that crown off, repenting of that, repenting of wanting to be the king of your own kingdom, the queen of your own kingdom, and going to the cross and saying, not my will, but yours be done, and understanding that that act of taking the crown off and hanging it on Christ is the act of saying, I turn from my sin and I believe in you, Jesus. And so when you don't feel like Jesus can save you, when you feel like you're too weak, when you feel like God isn't there, there is a sense in which I would challenge you, you are probably making too much of yourself and too little of what God did in Christ for you. So if you want to experience the total, whole, beautiful, powerful transformation that the gospel of grace brings, you have to come to the end of yourself. 
You have to acknowledge that he is Lord and I am not. You have to take that crown off your head and understand that Jesus wore that crown of thorns for you so that you might be forgiven and restored and redeemed. Even the deepest, darkest parts of your soul that you think no one should ever see because you are too ashamed to admit that they're there. When you live the Christian life, you have to understand that Christ died and was resurrected and that he ascended. And when he ascended on high, he sent his spirit so that you and I and his people might be clothed with a power from on high. The way of the gospel is the way of understanding that you are so powerful, not because you are accomplished, not because you've done something special, but because your God in Christ died for you and was resurrected and empowered you with his spirit. The way of power is the way of coming to the end of yourself and being empowered with a spirit that God has richly given to you through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Jesus came into this world and did not use his power to serve his own end, but to this end that he was called to by the Father, to redeem, to restore, and to unleash his people for the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you alone are full of power and glory, and we confess that we so often want to be the kings of our own kingdoms and live as if you're not really the king. Father, forgive us for that and fill us with your spirit so that we know that we might be empowered to repent, empowered to believe, empowered to forsake sin and pursue you. Lord, give us the grace and the strength as your people to know that this power of the gospel has fully and finally worked in and through us. But there will come a day when you will come back, Jesus, and make all things new so that our only experience for all eternity will be worshiping you and glorifying you as you come back and take away every tear from every eye. And there's a new heaven and a new earth in which there's no more storms, no more demoniacs, but just the perfect fellowship and glory of you with your people. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.